Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, well this week's episode is definitely a creepy one. A missing girl, a hairbrush, a bloody pillowcase and a storage locker full of items of interest. Plus, there's so much more. Okay, so tonight's references are from the News Tribune, the News Press, the Daily Times, the Reporter, the Washington Post, the Star Democrat, Born Evil, a true story of cannibalism and serial murder by Adrian Havel, Court records, and I found this one, again, on Forensics Files. But if you have watched the Forensics Files episode that this case has come from, don't worry, I've dug up plenty more. Okay, so this week we go back to 1992, Bethesda, Maryland, and that's just northwest of Washington, D.C., It's here where 23-year-old Laura Hortling was seen leaving for work on Monday morning, the 19th of October. But she never made it into work that day. Laura was six foot tall and was extremely talented academically, being accepted into Harvard University. She'd just returned home to Bethesda after graduating and was living with her mother Penny, a divorcee, who, like Laura, was also extremely talented. Penny was a successful psychotherapist, and she loved to help those less fortunate than her and was extremely trusting, maybe a little too trusting. She had employed a local homeless man to tend the garden and to do odd jobs around the house. Now, his name was Haddon Clark, and his employment had worked out quite well. He'd earned the trust of Penny to come and go inside the house to use the toilet or make coffee, and he could come and go as much as he pleased. While Laura was at home after graduating, she picked up a temp job in Washington while she decided on whether she'd go to law school or become a teacher. So, on the morning of the 19th of October 1992, neighbours saw Laura leave for work as they usually would. When Laura's work colleagues noticed that she hadn't arrived at the office, and she hadn't phoned in, they tried to call her, but they only got the answering machine. Concerned, her boss sent someone over to her house just to check out what was going on. When there was no answer at the door, they called Laura's brother Warren to come over, as Penny, she was away from home for a week at a conference. When Warren checked inside the house, to him it just looked normal, nothing missing or out of place. When he stepped outside and walked towards the bus stop that Laura would walk to each morning, he saw this gardener guy, Haddon Clark, driving towards him. Now, he tried to motion him to stop, but when Clark saw him, he just sped off. Now, Warren didn't think too much about this at the time. He just thought Clark was a bit of a weirdo anyway and forgot about it. Now, later that day, in fact, I think it was around night time, Laura still hadn't surfaced and so Warren called his mum, Penny, And then they called the police. The police, as they tend to do when young women go missing, they didn't worry about it too much, thinking, oh, she's going to turn up soon. She's probably had a big weekend or something. But Laura didn't turn up, and Penny and Warren were extremely worried where she was and what had happened to her. 
Now, police would attend the house to check it over, but they left after, just like Warren, not seeing anything really out of place. There was no forced entry. There was nothing to worry about. Now, when police door-knocked the street, though, a neighbour told them that she'd seen Laura on Monday morning leave the house and walk towards the bus stop at around 8am. Now, when police questioned Penny and Warren, this Haddon Clark guy, the gardener, his name was mentioned. Now, a couple of alert cops wondered if it was the same Haddon Clark that had been suspected over the disappearance of six-year-old Michelle Dorr in 1986. So they called his voicemail number, which I suppose it's, back in the day it was a way you could get in touch with someone before widespread use of mobile phones. Now, Clark, he called them back pretty much straight away, but he told them he would see them the next day. Now, sticking by his word, he did attend the cop shop, with, the, but he went there with the head of a homeless person's group. So he didn't just turn up by himself. He had someone with him. Now, Clark seemed to have an alibi for most of his movements around the time Laura had gone missing, except for when he said he w- he'd been sleeping in his truck, so no one could really confirm that. Police had nothing to keep him on, so they let him go. So, we're a few days into Laura going missing and police get sniffer dogs to help search. Now, funny enough, when they were given her scent, they went around the back door and not the front door. As we remember, people saw her walking out the front door that morning. So, why is they going around the back door? Anyway, we'll find out soon. All right. Well, they would find one of Penny's bras. That's a mum, a woman's blouse, a high-heeled shoe and a bloodied pillowcase in the woods, and it was near the house, it was sort of near a church as well, and it was thought the pillowcase was Laura's. And when forensically examined, they found a bloodied fingerprint on it. Actually, it was a thumbprint. But they then returned to the house, and they started spraying luminol around, especially on Laura's mattress. Now, this showed that there had been a large blood stain from the top to the bottom on one side. And this obviously couldn't see, couldn't be seen by the eye, so it had been cleaned up. They also checked Laura's hairbrush, and they found one strand that was different to the rest. In fact, it looked like synthetic hair, the type used in wigs. But Laura didn't own any wigs. Now, one thing Penny noticed, though, was that Laura's bed hadn't been made, and she always made her bed before going out. Another anomaly was that Penny mentioned to police that the description of Laura leaving the house on the Monday morning detailed that the person was wearing slacks. But Laura didn't own any slacks and never wore them because it accentuated her long legs too much. She always wore skirts. Again, they got this Clark guy in and interviewed him. Now, they told him about the bloody pillowcase and that they had his fingerprint on it. They were just bluffing at this point. When asked what he'd done with Laura, he told them that he couldn't remember. Still, as they had yet to identify the fingerprint, they had to let him go. See, because it was on a pillowcase, they had to do a couple of chemical reactions on this thing to actually get the fingerprint out of it. So it wasn't just like it was on a glass or something and they could just get it. So it took a little while before they could get this fingerprint. So... They couldn't 
hold him, but they had enough to get some search warrants. They looked into his financial records and they found this check used to buy supplies from a hardware store. Now, when they went to the store to find out what he'd purchased, it was duct tape, braided rope and nylon cord. Bit of a murder kit. On the check, they have this section where you can just put a memo in, like a reference, so you remember what you paid the check for. In that space, it was written, Laura. So on the same day Laura went missing, Haddon Clark also bought a queen-size sheet. Now, his mattress where he sleep in his truck, that was a double, but Laura's bed was a queen-size. Financial records also showed Clark had a storage space in Warwick, Rhode Island. He was seen by employees there two days after Laura disappeared. So police searched it. Guess what they found? They found dresses, false boobs, women's shoes, females' clothes and wigs. They were all in boxes in the storage unit. Okay, so things are getting a little bit weird. Not that there's anything wrong with him being a cross-dresser, but this might answer a few questions. So forensics are checking the bloodstains on pillows, the synthetic fibres on hairbrushes, and for any fingerprints as well. The synthetic fibre found on Laura's hairbrush was a perfect match for the type used on one of Clark's wigs. DNA from the bloody pillowcase was determined to be Laura's, and the shape of the bloodstain on the pillowcase was a match for a large pair of scissors that were in the house. And the fingerprint, or actually thumbprint, was a match for Haddon Clark. They hauled his ass back into the cop shop, finding him sleeping in the back of his truck, cuddling a one-eyed teddy bear. He would be charged with the murder of Laura Hortling and eventually pled guilty. Now, he did a plea deal where he would take authorities to Laura's resting place. So, he got 30 years for second-degree murder there. Laura's body would be found sticking out from a shallow grave less than a mile from her home. Her body was very decomposed and she was officially identified with dental records. So what happened? Well, Penny had employed Haddon Clark as she wanted to help those less fortunate than her. He seemed to work well with her and Clark bonded to Penny as if she was some sort of mother figure. Anyway, She let him go in and out of the house as time went on, as I said. She started to trust him. And looking back, Penny had noticed that a string of pearls had gone missing and some of her undies and dresses were gone as well. But she just didn't think too much about it at the time. Then when Laura came back to live at home after graduating from Harvard, Clark felt his nose pushed out of joint a bit that Penny favoured her over him. When Penny asked about missing tools in the shed out the back, Clark got a little pissed off, feeling like he was being accused of stealing. And actually, he was stealing. Then Penny had this conference that she had to go to. She was away for a week, so Laura would be in the house alone. On the night of Sunday the 18th, Laura went to bed early because she had some important duties at work the following day. Now, using a spare key that had been stored in the back shed, Clark was able to gain entry to the house without forcing his way in, so he was able to get in very quietly. He was wearing Penny's clothes, her undies, 
her slacks, her blouse. He had on a wig and a lady's trench coat. He also carried a purse. Now, under the coat, he had a .22 rifle. So he sneaks into her room and wakes her by rubbing the rifle against her. And he says, Why are you in my bed? What are you doing in my bed? Why are you wearing my clothes? At this point, Laura is terrified and replies, You're Laura. Please please don't hurt me. Clark then gets her to swear on a Bible that he is Laura. He then gets her to undress and shower at gunpoint. Now after showering, he bound her wrists and legs with the duct tape and then covered her mouth and nose. Now this covering her mouth and nose suffocates Laura. As then he removed the duct tape from her head with scissors, he slipped and they pierced her neck, causing the blood stains on the pillow. Now he wanted her earrings and he got so frustrated trying to get one of the pair out, he just cut it out with scissors. He then wrapped her up in a bed sheet and took her body out to his pickup truck. Clark then went back inside to clean up the bloody mess, taking with him the mattress pad, the sheet and that pillowcase. He then took a few trophies, including her high school ring. Then he walked out the front door at around 8am, dressed as Laura, or at least he looked like a woman, got in his truck and drove off, parking in the church parking lot where he usually slept in the back tray. So, this is why neighbours thought they saw Laura leave the house that morning. It was really Haddon Clark dressed as a woman, wearing a wig. When he woke... He was going to return to the house to clean up and take more trophies. But as he approached, he saw Warren, Laura's brother, freaked out and sped off. So that night, he drove close to one of his campsites, which he sometimes slept at, and buried Laura in a shallow grave. He then stashed his trophies in his storage shed, but he kept the pillowcase. Then when the cops called him, He freaked out and took the bloody pillowcase and Penny's bra and undies and tried to hide them in the woods behind the church. So the reason the sniffer dogs went to the back door of Penny's and Laura's place is because he took her out the back door, not the front. And the woods near the church were quite close, so they were able to sniff out the pillowcase and and the other things they found there. Again, can I shout out to Adrian Havel, whose book Born Evil... That's where I got that detail from because Adrian interviewed Clark many times when he was in prison. Okay, so that's not all. Remember I mentioned he had been a suspect over the disappearance of six-year-old Michelle Dore in 1986? Well, while in prison, he would start to talk to fellow inmates about his involvement in not only her disappearance but the murders of other women. So the short story about Michelle Dore was that he had abducted her and killed her. He had cut a Z in her back with a knife and then cut her throat. He would ultimately go to trial for the murder of Michelle and on the 6th of January 2000, Clark led investigators to where her body was buried in Old Columbia Pike, Baltimore. Finally, 14 years after she went missing, her family could start to move on. Clark had been living at his brother's place, which was just down the road from the Dawes house, when she went missing. He got 30 years for her murder. 
On December 15, 2000, while out with police looking for more bodies of women he'd told police he'd murdered, he led them to a property on South Pamet Road, Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Now, this used to be his grandfather's place. It's here they uncovered a bucket full of jewellery items, including Laura's high school ring. Apparently, there were around 200 items in this bucket, so who knows how many women he murdered, but no other bodies were found, probably because of the shifting sands on Cape Cod where he reckoned he buried some or urban development had concreted over other sites he mentioned. Oh, and when he went out to help investigators look for the other victims he said he'd murdered, the cops would have to go to Walmart and buy lady wigs for him and, and women's clothes for him to wear. Now, I'm not trying to kink shame him or, or anything. I'm just stating a fact. I don't care what you wear unless you steal it and then kill the said owners of these clothes. That's not good. Now, I do remember the Twitter mob coming for me, calling me out for kink shaming when I posted a photo of Russell Williams, you know, the Canadian serial killer, in women's undies and bra. And the caption I had there, so it was a photo of him wearing these undies and bra. The caption I had was Russell Williams pervert or something like that. Now... (laughs) The ones that were coming for me hadn't even listened to why I was calling him a pervert. It wasn't the wearing of 16-year-old girl's underpants. It was the fact that he was in her bedroom having stolen them, put them on and was taking selfies of himself and masturbating. That's what the photo was. Now, I call that perverted. But Twitter is a dumpster fire of the offended. Now, let's get back onto this. Another disturbing fact would come out of all of this. Clark reckons that he would drink the blood of his victims, all women, because it made him feel like a woman. Another bit of trivia is that his older brother by one year, Bradfield Clark, he was convicted of the dismemberment murder of his co-worker Patricia Mack in 1984 and would be sentenced to 18 years to life for second degree murder. Jeez, what a family. So, Haddon Clark not only had a shit family, he'd had pretty fucked up childhood. He had brain damage from birth. His alco mum would dress him up in girls' clothes and call him Kristen. His alco dad would beat him and call him a retard. He would cut off the heads of pets of any of the kids that teased him. As he got older, he was still in trouble, shoplifting women's clothes, theft, killing pets, he would ultimately get another 10 years tacked onto his other sentences for stealing from a family that that had rented their basement out to him. Oh, and he killed their cats as well. So, Islanders, after watching the Forensic Files episode on this, I had no idea about the other stuff. I guess they only have a certain amount of time and the episodes get a bit old, so some of this has come up later on. But it wasn't so much forensic that initially led investigators to Clark, but it sure screwed him once they started to analyse the crime scene evidence. The wig hair on Laura's brush, the bloody thumbprint on the pillowcase, and then the financial trail where he paid for all his murder kit by cheque and put Laura's name in the memo section. It's unreal that perps just do some dumb shit like this. Like Natasha Darcy just searching for a 
thousands of terms on how to kill people and all that and putting it on a phone thinking, oh, I wonder if I'll get caught. Oh, I better, I better search for that. Will I get caught by police if I search on my phone? This sort of dumb shit. But what I think is probably more scary is finding the hundreds of jewellery items in that bucket on his grandpa's old property. Clark did confess to many more murders, but he hasn't been found responsible for any. You think with that many trophies, around 200, there must be more victims out there. Just think, what set all this off was Penny asking her about some missing tools in the shed. She was just trying to help out the unfortunate, but got paid back in her daughter being murdered. She didn't check him out before hiring, which is pretty much I'm sure she regrets. When you see people like Clark, the ones that not only have a men- they have mental deficiencies, but they're brought up in deplorable conditions, what do you do with them early on? And don't get me wrong, I don't have any sympathy for him, but there are people out there now just like him. What do you do with them? Maybe one day we'll be in a world like the Minority Report. I know a few people that probably get locked up for pre-crime. Anyway, this is the end of this case. If you do want a deeper dive, don't forget to check out Born Evil, a true story of cannibalism and serial murder by Adrian Havel. As I said, he did interview Haddon Clark in prison and he's been able to provide that extra detail on what happened that night. Okay, Islanders, that's about it. So, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'd also like to thank my patrons, past and present, for keeping the island's lights on. This is Wayne Ritchie, Rodney Kavaris, and Campion Ford. Must be a Cambo Ford Rello. Anyway, thanks so much to all my patrons. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving these cases. But can I just ask you to take time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, wherever. The Island is one of the only few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use iTunes or any pod player. And I have links to merch, social media there as well. My email links there if you want to get in touch. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bonfakalunga. Bonfakalunga.